We have been looking at the text in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 2, the story of the wise men seeking after Jesus. And uh, today we're going to focus on the star and how God uses stars. Uh, Matthew 2, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judah, Judea, excuse me, uh, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. I'm going to come back to that. The star went before them, okay, uh, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So, uh, this is our third week studying this passage. And basically, here's here's the outline. God gave these wise men, who were really uh, Persian priests in an occultic religion, He gave them three things to lead them to Christ. First of all, seeking hearts. We talked about the fact that man left to himself does not seek after God. Therefore, it has to be God who seeks after man. And he creates in them hearts that know there's more than just this religion they've been brought up in. So we talked about seeking hearts. And then uh, they follow a star. We're going to talk about the star today. A subjective thing that gets their attention. It's the world they live in, and God uses that to lead them to Jerusalem, but he doesn't leave them in the subjective world. They ask, well, where's the, where's the, the Messiah supposed to be born? And they open the Scriptures. And we looked at the, the, how the Scriptures play a part in this last week, where we see that uh, the Messiah was prophesied about dozens of times in the Old Testament. So what I want to talk about today, I want to kind of backtrack. God gives them seeking hearts. They are led to the scriptures. But in between there, there's this star. This this subtle, subjective sign that only they seemed to notice. The rest of Israel was... Bored. They didn't see it. 
So what are we to make of this star? Now, um, I know this can be hard to believe, but my wife and I occasionally have an argument. Okay? And who's usually right? No, no, you are. No, 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 you are. Okay. One of our first arguments was the first Christmas. And uh, you know what it was over? Was the star in our atmosphere or outside of our atmosphere? <laughs> only, only seminary students would actually get heated over that. Now, my lovely wife, here's her argument. It says star. It's a star. It's out there. And my argument was, but it led, it led them around. It had to be in the atmosphere. He can use the word star, but it had to be in the atmosphere. And on and on it went. And oh, we survived it, right? So um, I was just reading my ESV MacArthur Study Bible this week. And I came across this little note by Johnny Mac. This could not have been a supernova or a conjunction of planets, as some modern theories suggest, because of the way the star moved and settled over one place. See verse 9. Dear. It's more likely a supernatural reality similar to the Shekinah that guided the Israelites in the days of Moses. You know that thing in the atmosphere that led them through the desert? Okay, so we don't know exactly what the star was. There's a lot of speculation, but I'm going with in the atmosphere. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So there's debate. Was it something out there, something in here? Uh, we don't know for sure, but I do know this. It was spectacular enough to get the attention of those who were looking. And it was subtle enough for those who didn't give a rip. Okay? All of Israel could care less. There's something going on in the sky. They ignored it. But these guys who had seeking hearts traveled over a thousand miles through the desert following a star. Okay? So that raises the question... Why doesn't God make himself known in a more spectacular way? And you've got all these atheist books today. Uh, and they're all convinced that God is an illusion. He doesn't exist. If he really existed, why doesn't he make himself uh, more spectacularly clear? You know why? Because even if he did, people would still ignore it. There is not enough evidence to convince the person who's not looking. Okay? Romans 1 says there is so much evidence in creation that man is without excuse. Nobody on judgment day can say, well, I didn't know you existed. You didn't give enough evidence. Romans 1 says uh, the existence of God is so abundantly clear from the order and the beauty and the intricacy of the universe, of the planet, of the ecosystem, of the human body, of the human brain, go to the zoo, look at all that going on there, to say, ah, there's no evidence that God exists, the Bible says you are without excuse. But the person who doesn't want to see it won't see it. You know, uh, Jesus did something. He did a lot of things 
that were unexplainable. But probably the pinnacle, other than his own resurrection from the dead, the pinnacle of things that he did to prove that he was the Messiah was the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. A bunch of witnesses were there. The dead man in the town of Bethany had been wrapped, placed in a tomb, stone put in front of the tomb. Jesus goes to the tomb. All the Jews are following him. They're going, what's he going to go there to mourn? What's going on here? And he says, move the stone. And they go, no, he stinketh. That's what the King James says. He stinketh. Right? And he says, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man comes out of the tomb. Now, you would think that the religious leaders would have said, this proves it. He is the Messiah. What does it say? So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Let's destroy the evidence. In fact, let's not only destroy the miracle doer, let's destroy Lazarus in John 12. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Wouldn't that be funny if they killed him a second time and Jesus brought him back again and they killed him again and he just... So what's, what's the lesson there? For those of you who are truly searching for God, or I should say for those of you whom God has awakened and is drawing, there are stars. There are subjective things getting your attention. And there's the objective word of God that tells you the truth. For those of you who aren't interested in finding the true God, there's not enough evidence in the world to convince you. That's one lesson of the star. Now, here's another question. These wise men from Persia, how did they know that this star had any connection to the Jewish Messiah, and really the Messiah of the world, how did they know that that star up there was connected to Jesus being born? Now, there's, there's a, a degree to which we don't know. Now, many have made the connection to this Old Testament prophecy in Numbers 24. This is um, God using a pagan prophet by the name of Balaam, to speak truth, even though he wasn't a believer. And he prophesies about Jesus in Numbers twenty four seventeen. It says, I see him, but not now. So, so this prophecy is going to take place in the future, not during Balaam's time. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, or out of Israel, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. So there's a star connected with the king that's going to come out of Israel. And, and while most people go, that's, that's got something to do with the star of Bethlehem, still, how did they know that that particular star at that time was the one that was being spoken of here in Numbers? We don't know. We don't know. Now, I will tell you this. These wise men 
were astrologers, not astronomers. Astronomers are those who scientifically study the stars. Astrology is a form of the occult. Right? It's trying to read the future by looking at the stars. Now, we are not to use this passage to justify occultic activity. We are not to say, oh, the wise men uh, gazed at stars. We should gaze at stars to try and figure out the future. Or we should use Ouija boards. Or we should do uh, things like that to, to try and uh, have God speak to us. No, no, we are not to do that. But I do believe at times God condescends to our worlds and uses things that we may be into, even though they may be wrong, to get our attention, to wake us up. That, that was the world they lived in, the world of stargazing. And something was going on in their charts and in their world that got their attention. This star rose and God used it, get this, to lead them out of their occultic world to the scriptures, to the object. He used the subjective to lead them to the objective word of God where we are to get our sure revelation. Okay? Uh, you know, we see this in a couple of places in scripture. Remember um, King Saul, before he went totally nuts and tried to kill David, he bans all witches from practicing their witchcraft in Israel. Yet, when he starts to go crazy and is demon-possessed, where does he go to get direction? To the witch of Endor. And God actually uses that encounter to tell Saul, am I missing something here? Oh, good. Okay, good. All right. In the atmosphere, is that the... No. Okay, Witch of Endor. Okay, so um, <laughs> this, is a, this is a participatory thing, okay? So anybody else want to join in? Uh, so, so, so God allows uh, the use of this occultic, sinful event in the life of Saul to put him in his place, to communicate to him. Does that mean we should all go to witches now? No, but God used it. You know, um, Pilate's wife, who was into dreams and superstition and so forth, is warned in a dream not to have anything to do. She says, I've suffered much because of that innocent man, Jesus. And the Romans were into all kinds of superstitious things. Yet God used that to, to wake her up. Did they give in and follow Jesus? No. But God used this subjective thing. Okay? Now, um, stars, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to stars as those subjective things that God uses to get our, our attention. Stars are, are God or is God condescending to our world to wake us up, to lead us to Scripture, to lead us to Christ. Now, I want to be very cautious. I want to warn us not to abandon the Scripture 
and go follow this subjective world. You know, it's been a while. I checked my illustration calendar. It's been a while since I've told my bird story. So, Megan, you've heard my bird stories. Like, every, every time you show up, you think that's all I have, right? So, it's a sign for you. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's been like... It's been a long time since I've told my bird stories, so I'm going to just use them again. Now, here, real quickly. In fact, you can, you can chime in at the right time, for those of you who know what I'm going to say. But um, one time I was driving my 92 Lumina to uh, one of my kids' soccer games. And I was going down a road, and there was uh, like a forest preserve over to my right. I can picture it now. And as I'm driving, I see this big bird coming in my peripheral vision. It's coming across a field. And as I'm driving, the bird's getting closer and closer, and it's an owl, a big owl. And right when, the, right when I'm crossing the road, the bird turns in front of my windshield and looks me in the eye. Now here's what I ask. Do you know what I think God was trying to tell me? Absolutely nothing, right? Now, I, I, know, I know a lot of Christians who would oh, it's an omen. Now, God's not speaking through owls, okay? Um, now, I have a, another bird event. Once when uh, I was getting ready Sunday morning, beautiful spring day, sun is shining. I've got my bird feeder outside, and I'm watching the, the birds, and these two pigeons come, and they land on the ground, and they're, eating the bird seed. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, you're, you're communicating that you're taking care of the birds. And this is just a good sign for me. A hawk comes swooping in, grabs one of these pigeons by the neck and shakes it around. There's feathers all over the place. It wasn't dead yet, so it slammed it to the ground and then it flew off and ate it. You know what I think God was trying to tell me? absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, he feeds, he feeds the hawks too, right? Yeah. So I've got a new bird story for you. This happened a couple weeks ago. You know I run. Look at me, right? Uh, <laughs> it's not that funny. <laughs> so um, my route is I run from my house down to the Fox River across three bridges, There's trolls under the bridges, okay? And then I run on the west side of the river under Wilson Street, come up by the little ice cream shop. I don't stop until I'm done, all right? (laughs) Past the Peg Bond Center, down the river walk, and right where the dam is, I stop. It's about two miles. So I did this the other day, and I'm, you know, breathing heavy, And I look out on the river, and there's all these geese, just tons of geese. And I'm watching. And you ever ever had this happen where you you can just sense somebody sneaking up on you? And I kind of turned and looked, and it was a goose running full speed with his wings out like this. (laughs) Ran right into me. (laughs) Right into me. And then he kind of fell to the side and ran and joined his friends. You know what I think God was trying to say through that goose? Absolutely nothing. But I do have a lot of bird stories, don't I? Okay. So 
All that to say, let's not be reading omens into birds and things. But on the other hand, God does us the favor of entering into our worlds and getting our attention. But the, the path is to go to the scriptures, the objective, infallible word of God. Now, let me give you some star stories. Stories of how God used subjective things to wake people up, draw them to the scriptures, draw them to Christ. Okay? Um, this Christmas, the movie Unbroken is going to come out. Um, they allowed pastors to go see the preview. So uh, my wife and I got to go see the preview of the movie Unbroken. Um, if you've read the book, you're going to be disappointed because... It's the story of, of uh, Louis Zamparini, Zamparelli, Zamparini, Zamparini, okay? Uh, he is a, a young man, or he was a young man, who was quite an athlete. He actually ran in the Olympics, didn't get a medal, but he ran in the Olympics. Then World War II broke out, and he was part of a flight crew. And the, uh, the airplane, it was a B-24, was shot down in the Pacific Ocean. Um, on board were 11 uh, airmen. Eight of them died. Three of them survived. So here's uh, some pictures from the movie. Um, they had a life raft, and they survived in the ocean for 47 days. Actually, two of them survived. One of them died. They survived on uh, little raw fish, and then they caught two birds. They ate the raw bird meat, got sick. Don't eat raw bird meat. Cook it. It's tough to do on a raft, though. Okay. They endured constant shark attacks. Um, they were strafed by, uh, by Japanese aircraft. You know, that's what machine guns are. And then they came back and did it again. And the rafts were full of bullets, but they did not get hit. There's a miracle right there. Um, one of them died 33 days at sea. And Louis and Phil survived for 47 days, just skeletons. Now, um, let me read. Now, now, by the way, the book is good. The movie is good from a story perspective. Um, now, Elizabeth hated it. Because she said it was like a combination of Jaws and Shawshank Redemption. I like Jaws and Shawshank Redemption. Okay, she, That was just pure torture. When it was done, she looked at me and said, you owe me big time. Okay, So it's, it's a, a brutal movie about survival. But at the end, the, he gets converted, and that's just a little footnote at the end. So what's disappointing, they're trying to market this to Christians and to pastors, talk it up amongst your church. I, I would say if you're going to invest $10, get the book. Okay, But here's what happened uh, while, and I'm going to need my glasses because I am getting so old that I can't see the text anymore. Okay, um, Here's what happens as they are at sea. On the sixth day without water, the men recognized that they were not going to last much longer. 
Mac was failing, especially quickly. They bowed their heads together and Louis prayed. Now he's not a Christian, but he's praying. If God would quench their thirst, he vowed he would dedicate his life to him. The next day, by divine intervention or a fickle humor of the tropics, the sky broke open and rain poured down. Twice more, the water ran out. Twice more, they prayed. Twice more, rain came. The showers gave them just enough water to last a short while longer. So that's, that's a, a mark. Keep that, keep that in mind. Okay? Um, they prayed, and immediately after, God brings rain. Okay? 47 days, Japanese soldiers capture them then. And they're put into a Japanese prisoner of war camp for two years. And Louis, especially, is tortured by uh, the captain of the camp, uh, Lieutenant Wantanabe. This guy just has a, a special hatred in his heart for Louis. In fact, that's the actual guy who made it his goal to make this man's life miserable. In fact, one of the big scenes is they make him hold uh, a log over his head for I don't know how long. Um, and they're in this, uh, they, they have to work in a coal mine, and it's, it's just brutal for, for two years. Okay. Finally, the war is over, and he survives. He gets married. He begins drinking heavily. And he has constant nightmares about being beaten and then about going back to Japan, finding this want-to-be guy and strangling him. That's his life obsession is to kill the man who tortured him. So his life is falling apart. And he, get, he gets married um, and... They're living in Hollywood, California. And right about that time, there was a preacher who was rising. People were recognizing this guy. He set up a tent in Hollywood, California, in Los Angeles. And um, revival broke out. There was a young guy named Billy Graham. And... Um, his wife goes to the Graham crusade and gets saved. And she says, Louis, will you please go to this? He does not want to go. He does not want to have anything to do with it. But he goes and he hears Graham preach and he is angry at Billy Graham and God and life and his captors. And he, he says, I'm not going back. And she begs him to go back. He says, all right, on one condition, we sit in the back row and when he does his little altar call thing, every head is bowed, every eye is closed, we get up and leave. All right, so that's the conditions. So he goes back, and let me read what happens. Louis shone with sweat. He felt accused, cornered, pressed by a frantic urge to flee. 
As Graham asked for heads to bow and eyes to close, Louis stood abruptly and rushed for the street, towing Cynthia behind him. Nobody leaving, said Graham. (laughs) You can leave while I'm preaching, but not now. Everybody is still and quiet. Every head bowed, every eye closed. He asked the faithful to come forward. Louis pushed past the congregants in his row, charging for the exit. His mind was trembling. He felt enraged, violent, on the edge of explosion. He wanted to hit someone. As As he reached the aisle, he stopped. Cynthia, the rows of bowed heads, the sawdust underfoot, the tent around him all disappeared, a memory long beaten back. The memory from which he had run the evening before was upon him. Louis was back in the raft. There was gentle Phil crumpled up before him. Max breathing skeleton, endless ocean stretching uh, away in every direction, the sun laying over them the cunning bodies of sharks waiting, circling. He was a body on a raft, dying of thirst. He felt words whisper from his own swollen lips. It was a promise thrown at heaven, a promise he had not kept, a promise he had allowed himself to forget until just this moment. If you will save me, I will serve you forever. And then, standing under a circus tent on a clear night, In downtown Los Angeles, Louis felt rain. I don't know if 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 that's just that it really rained, or if he imagined that it rained, but that was his star that God gave him. His subjective star. It was the last flashback he would ever have. Louis let go of Cynthia and turned toward Graham. He felt supremely alive. He began walking. This is it, said Graham. God has spoken to you. You come on. Cynthia left her eyes, uh, kept her eyes on Louis all the way home. When they entered the apartment, Louis went straight to the liquor cabinet. It was the time of night when the need usually took hold of him. But for the first time in years, Louis had no desire to drink. He carried the bottles to the kitchen sink, opened them, poured their contents into the drain. Then he hurried through the apartment, gathered packets of cigarettes, a secret stash of girly magazines, everything that was part of his ruined years, he heaved it all down the trash chute. In the morning he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird, that's the name of his torturer, hadn't come into his dreams. The bird would never come again. Now, uh, he says that he made a decision for Christ And he never had nightmares about his captors again. And, now listen to this. This is from the book. This this is actually from uh, an online site. Uh, He has visited many of the guards from his POW days to let them know that he has forgiven them. Many of the war criminals who committed the worst atrocities were held in Sagamo Prison in Tokyo. In October 1950, Zamperini went to Japan, gave his testimony, and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ through an interpreter. The colonel in charge of the prison encouraged any of the prisoners who recognized Zamperini to come forward and meet him. Zamperini threw his arms around each one of them. 
Once again, he explained the Christian gospel of forgiveness to them. The prisoners were somewhat surprised by Zamperini's genuine affection for those who had once ill-treated him. His star was rain that reminded him of how God saved him. It led him to Billy Graham. Billy Graham preached the gospel. He met Jesus Christ. His life was changed. You want another one? Yes, Pastor, please tell us more. Um, Oh, there he is. You know who that is? Billy Graham. That's all you need. Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Some of you have no idea what that is. Who's that? That's Stephen Baldwin. You know, Alex Baldwin. And there are other Baldwin brothers. How many Baldwin brothers are there? Three or four of them. And they're all in movies. Um, He's now a Christian. I don't know much about him, um, but I do know that he used to make a lot of money. He was in his, mo- his most famous movie. He was Barney Rubble in the Flintstones. He was in uh, The Usual Suspects. Okay. Um, so he was living, again, in Hollywood, uh, making a lot of money, living for himself, They had a cleaning woman named Augusta who was always singing gospel tunes under her breath as she was cleaning. So, whoops, one day um, the wife says, why are you always singing gospel tunes under your breath? And uh, she says, well, I'm a Christian. And she laughed. And his wife said, why are you laughing? And Augusta said, because you think I'm here to clean your house. I'm not here to clean your house. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. You and your husband are going to become Christians and have a big ministry. So the wife went and told Stephen that, and he laughed. But it got him asking questions about God and led them to the Bible and led them to Jesus. And now, they have a ministry. So, here's a case where the star that got their attention was another Christian. In other words, y'all can be stars in other people's lives to get their attention, to lead them to Jesus. Okay? Who's that guy? You know, right? It's Lee Strobel. He used to be at Willow. Uh, and since then, he's written uh, uh, the books, the Case for Christ books. And um, he's done a lot of, lot of writing. He's got a TV show where he uh, talks about Christian apologetics. So um, his story, for those of you who, who know about it, he used to be an atheist and worked at the Chicago Tribune before he became an author and a speaker. Um, Right when he was converted, he was still working at the Tribune. And um, he said, uh, so he just became a Christian, and and I heard him tell this story. He said he, uh, he felt led to go into the office of his boss and share the gospel 
That's kind of a scary thing to do. But he did it. And he went in there and he said, hey, I've got something to share with you. And the boss said, sit down. And he shared his testimony and he shared the gospel. And of course, he was expecting the boss to fall to his knees, repent, accept Jesus, and live happily ever after. The boss kind of went, uh-huh, back to work. And he goes, oh, that was weird. I, I really felt God led me to do that and nothing happened. Well, years later, he's speaking at some church, and there's a line of people who come up to talk to him afterwards. And one guy gets to the, to the front of the line, and he says, hey, I just want to thank you um, for your ministry. It's through you that I became a Christian. And Lee Strobel says, oh, um, was it a book of mine, or was it a sermon? And he goes, no, I was the janitor at the Chicago Tribune. And I was cleaning an office. And next door, you were sharing the gospel with some guy. And I heard the gospel. And now I'm a believer. See, you don't even know when you share who it's for. The, the non-believer who hears your, your gospel presentation may reject it, but they may go tell somebody else. Or somebody else may overhear. You never know how God is going to use you as a star. One more, one more story. I'm going to tell your story. Is that okay? Okay. Speaking of drug addicts. No. Um, <laughs> so Elizabeth was raised in a Presbyterian church. She grew up hearing the gospel kind of believing the gospel, but then she went to IU, uh, Indiana, uh, Indiana State, Indiana University, Bobby Knight, pagans, alcohol, and she, turns out she wasn't a Christian, <laughs> um, but she was an RA, a resident assistant on a floor, and there was another RA, uh, a guy named Steve, right? And um, while she's got Christianity, she knows the gospel. She's got the party world out there. And there's this guy, Steve, who, as she's observing him, I think your comment is, the world could be falling apart, but there was a peace about this guy. And one day, they just happened to be crossing the street together. And she said, what is it about you, Steve? You just seem to be at peace. And he turns and says, oh, I'm a Christian. And Elizabeth says, by the time they had crossed the street, she had given her life to Christ. Okay? Now that is an example of a person being a star that God uses, and he uses the fruit of the Spirit to get their attention. In an unloving, unjoyful, non-peaceful world, when you can just walk through this dark world showing love and joy and peace and patience, people are going to go, something's up with that person. In fact, Peter says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Um, how many people come up and ask you, hey, what, how come you're so different? Make it your goal 
to display the fruit of the Spirit so people go, what's up with you? And God will use you. Now, let me, let me end with this. Some of you, uh, you're here this morning and you're not a believer yet. But God has put some stars in your life. Could be miracles, could be other people, could be circumstances, and he's got your ear. And for some reason, you find yourself here this morning. He wants you to hear the message, the gospel message. What is it? You're separated from God because of your sin. You will remain separated from God because of your sin for all of eternity. Unless you respond to the good news. See, the bad news is you're separated from God. And that's why your life is miserable. The good news is God wants you to be in relationship with him. But the problem is you're a sinner who's been in rebellion. Not only does your heart need to be changed, but you need to be forgiven of your sin. You can't do it yourself. Somebody needs to pay for your sin. And that's where Christ comes in. He came into the world, was born a baby. He grew up and he came to be nailed to a cross to pay for your sin. He is your Savior. And the good news is this. When you turn to him and embrace him by faith, trust him, he forgives your sin. And you are restored in a relationship with God. Not only now, but for all eternity. And this is your moment. Trust in him. You may have been running from him all your life. Trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray.